All right, well, we have a heady study today. We're going to be going over the hypostatic union, which is a lot to do in one Sunday school class. And before we do that, we want to go back and look at Hebrews chapter 1 and dig into Hebrews chapter 1 a little bit um, just to firmly uh, ground ourselves in the deity of Christ. So turn to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to walk through the first few verses of Hebrews 1 together. Uh, before we do that, let's go ahead and open up a prayer. God, we thank you once again for your word, for your Holy Spirit who leads and guides us. Pray that he would open up our eyes as we look into your text, that you would give us understanding and clarity, that we would beware of the, the ditches of heresy on uh, the far ends of understanding your, your natures, and that we would rest in, in you and your care and um, rejoice in the the complexity of your simplicity, um, the fact that you are single, but you are unsearchable. God, we thank you for the person that you are. Amen. All right, so Hebrews chapter 1 um, should be hopefully a familiar text for us right now. I'm going to go ahead and read the first two verses. Says God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Good verses, right? Um, let's dig in and see what we got um, as soon as I get on the right page. That's what we'll do anyway. Possibly. All right, so it starts off saying that God, after he spoke to the fathers long ago, and the prophets in many portions, in many ways. So referring back to um, how he had revealed himself in the past, and then he's going to contrast that with, uh, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, that is in Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things. Um, and this is not working for me. All right, maybe that'll work. And maybe not. <laughs> All right, so when it says that he appointed Christ, um, talking about how Christ was designated in eternity past to be heir of all. Um, we, we know that there are different roles within the Godhead, within the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see several times, um, 20 plus times, that the Father is the one who sent the Son. All throughout John, John is really the one who hammers that, that um, Jesus says, well, I was sent with the Father. I don't do anything on my own initiative, but the Father who sent me, he has um, given me this, the ability to do these things. He's given me the words that I say. Um, however, Jesus himself also has, it's not like he's completely... Um, on the recipient end, that he has no say in it, that he's just being 100% submissive, which he is, but he also has a, a desire to, to come um, in the incarnation. Will somebody read John 10, 11 through 18? John 10, 11 through 18. 
And then I'll grab uh, Hebrews 7. Okay, John 10, 11? Yep, yeah, through 18. 18. All right, let me see if I can do it. Let me see if I can find it. <clears throat> 10, verse uh, 11 through 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Excuse me. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. All right. So there at the end, again, we see this is the command that I see from my father. And that's kind of the feel that we get going throughout the book of John and really throughout the New Testament. That the father is the one who sent the son. But even in that same passage, we see that he is the good shepherd. And he distinguishes himself from the hirelings. He's not just a hired hand. He's not somebody who is doing something because he's to or because he's getting something out of it but he has of himself a desire to lay down his life for the sheep and he says towards the end that he does it of his own accord of his own initiative nobody takes his life from him but he gives it up himself also Hebrews 7 26 through 28 says for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest holy innocent undefiled separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. So again, in that passage, we see that he offers up himself. Um, and so while it was appointed, that he would come by the Father, and um, that incarnation took place because the Father had sent the Son. The Son was a willing participant. He was um, a, a cooperative in the incarnation as well. Creation through him. Um, again, back in Hebrews chapter 1 is where we're at, Trev. Um, so creation through him. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, um, God. I, I actually think, um, and I kind of wish Jeremy was in here so I could disagree with him, but I think that it's speaking of the Father personally in verse 2, who sent the Son. So it says, in these last days um, has spoken to us in his Son, and so that his before preceding the Son, I think, is speaking specifically of the Father, not the triune God, um, but that specific person of the Trinity whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And then, yes, so through whom, so through Jesus, he, or through, yeah, Jesus, he made the world. Um, but again, this is speaking of his uh, cooperation in, um, <laughs> you're good, um, in creation, that he was a cooperative agent. 
So oftentimes, most oftentimes, when that word through is used, it's used of uh, secondary means. So somebody else coming along is a, a secondary agent, but that's not always the case. Um, for example, the first two verses of our first two books of Corinthians use that word in a way that um, is a primary cause. So Paul called us an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes our brother. So it was by the will or through the will of God. Um, it's not a secondary agent, but a primary agent. Um, so the main point is that Jesus was taking place in creation. He was part of that creative work. All right, Hebrews 1, 3, and 4. Will somebody read those two verses for us, please? And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Amen. All right, so when it says that he is the exact, rep exact representation, um, he is the express image. His character is engraved on, on Christ. Christ is um, a, a mere image of God. Nature, talking about the Father's nature as deity, um, that's something that we're going to get into today. That's talking about the substance, the hypostasis, um, which goes into the hypostatic union, the nature. What? Yeah, if in my debate with Kwaku about if the Father is immaterial, he said, because you know, when we talk about the Trinity, we say one substance, three persons, right? Yeah. And Kwaku says, well, the Bible never talks about substance anywhere. And I referred him in the debate to Hebrews 1.3 that says Jesus is the exact representation of his nature or his substance. It's mm -hmm. the same word. It's hypostasis. And asked him if he had a better translation for that, which he did. Of course not. <laughs> but if you're ever talking to somebody and they ask, "Well, what's the substance stuff?" to say God is a substance is to like make mm -hmm. him sound uh, vague or whatever. It's right there in Scripture. Yeah. As we talked about several weeks ago, substance could actually be referred to as stuff. That could be a translation. So his his nature, his person, his being, his substance, his stuff. What what he is and Jesus is the exact representation of the father's stuff his substance his being his nature right and we'll get into that here momentarily <coughs> inherited um, well yeah. before that so let's go back to verse 3 so he Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power that's Pretty cool, right? Um, similar to Colossians 1.17, that he's holding all things together. And when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Um, anybody have a King James or a New King James in here? Nobody. Where's Joseph? When he right? Oh, all right. Will you read verse 3 in your New King James? Yes, please. And listen for the difference there. 
who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Alright, did you guys catch that? When he had by himself purged our sins or made purification for our sins. So the words there are in the middle voice. So it's not something that was done for him or um, somebody else did on his behalf, but he did it by himself. Jesus, the son, by himself made purification for our sins. Another note on uh, the exact representation of his nature, there's a debate that James White did with uh, Jehovah's Witness. It's one of the best debates I've ever seen. It's like a top three debate for me. And they were talking about this verse for a long time, Hebrews 1.3, because Jehovah's Witnesses believed that Jesus was created, right? And so the guy in the debate was saying he's the exact representation of his nature or the exact imprint, and he was using the illustration of like a copy, copy yeah. the exact copy, implying that at some point in the past, God copied himself or made a copy of himself <laughs> to create Jesus. But it's important to note that Scripture never refers to any type of event where there was a copy being made at all. Um, it just refers to two persons sharing in the same substance. Not that there was one person and then he copied himself and made two persons. It doesn't talk that way. It just says, as long as... God has existed. He has existed eternally in three persons. And right. there was never a time when it was just one and copied himself. That's craziness. Yeah, a yeah, photocopy scenario is unbiblical, for sure. Well, it hasn't been invented yet. So <laughs> Amen. Yes, that's what you tell them. That's an easy debate. <laughs> Who needs James White when you got Rex? <laughs> All right. Oh, one, one more thing. At the end of verse 3 there, it says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, um, symbolizing he's done, right? He's not standing, but he's sitting down. He's finished to uh, telestai, right? It's, it's complete and done. All right, and then inherited. Special designation on the throne after the pinnacle of all history was completed. Uh, most excellentist. Um, so, <laughs> to, to make up words. Um, but again, same kind of mentality that it is, um, it is completed, it's finished. So verse 4, having become much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So one more thing in verse 4, so having become much better. So it's not as if he wasn't better before. But remember, in the incarnation, he had made himself lower than the angels. So... Uh, harkening back to John 17:5, that he had that glory with the Father before time, and after this period of the incarnation, after he took on and by himself made purification for our sins, then he once again resumed that glory that he had with the Father um, and became again better than the angels, um, having inherited a more excellent name than they. Any thoughts on those verses before we move on to? the hypostatic union. Okay. Um, yes, scripture gives us details on how he became flesh. We're going to look at that in the hypostatic union. So um, we looked at this briefly last week. You should have, if you have your notes and blanks, to fill in on this from this page. So Jesus is one person possessing two distinct natures, humanity and deity. That is the probably the most important thing that we're going to say today, if you can wrap your mind around that and remember that Jesus is one person, two distinct natures. Um, that is the heart of the hypostatic union. 
that he is 100% of each nature, humanity and deity. This union of two natures occurred at the virgin birth. He did not possess a physical body in eternity past. Um, also, he didn't become God after he was born. So we'll get into that a little bit too. So one person, two natures, unblended, um, distinct, but not separated. Everybody got that? Okay. All right, let's open up to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, and this is the go-to passage for uh, the hypostatic union. So Philippians 2, we should remember that um, every text has a context, right? And the context of Philippians 2 is speaking of humility. And so we have to keep that in mind that Paul is talking to the Philippians and he is really going to jump into some deep, meaty theology. But he's just going to use it as an example. He's not teaching them this theology as if they didn't know it before. They had already been taught this theology of the hypostatic union, of the nature of Jesus, that he, being in the very form of God, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he's using that as an example um, for humility, which is really kind of cool to think that they already had that understanding. And he could just say, yeah, just like this big, deep theological truth that we're sitting here trying to, to differentiate and understand today, um, he's pointing to that as a picture so they can understand you need to be humble just as Jesus is humble. All right, so let's jump in, um, starting with verse 5. So, again, um, speaking about humility. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, again, that was just a quick little example. Be like Jesus in his humility, who laid down his life for us. But there's so much in there that we need to make sure we understand in the same way the Philippians understood so that we don't go off course, go off base, because it's easy to do. So there are two words that make all the difference in this passage. Right off the bat, any idea what those two words are going to be? Amen. Yep. Form and emptied. We see form two different times in that passage. So in verse 6 says, although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And then verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So the way that we define form and emptied are going to make all the difference to our, our understanding of how this works. So um, again, forms in, in both verses there. So he was, he existed in the form of God, and then he took on the form of a bondservant. Not the other way around. He didn't exist in the form of a bondservant and then take on the form of God. He existed yeah. in the form of God, took on the form of a bondservant. The Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to instruct that in eternity past, Jesus not only existed, but he existed as God himself. Just like we read in John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the word. He was already there. Um, just like Genesis 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning God, right? 
in the beginning, the Word. Not somebody made the Word, not the Word developed or grew, um, but in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Equality drives this home. Going back to those three words that we want to use for Trinity, right? There's um, unity and plurality and equality. Jesus is equal with the Father, equal with the Holy Spirit. And it says it right there in verse 6. It says, for any honest person looking at the text, it's right there. Yeah, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he existed in the form of God. So again, context, speaking of the humility of Jesus. All right, Vincent's word study says, we must here dismiss from our minds the idea of shape. The word is used in its philosophical sense to denote that expression of being which carries in itself the distinctive nature and character of the being to whom it pertains and is thus permanently identified with that nature and character. So God doesn't have a form, right? He is spirit and we worship him in spirit and in truth. So when it says that he existed in the very form of God, it's speaking of the nature, the character, the hypostasis, right? The, the stuff of God. That is what it's speaking of. And the, the usage of form in verse 7, where it says he was in the form of a bondservant, that should inform us of form in verse 6. Because just as we know that God, that Jesus took on flesh, that he really was a man, uh-huh. so he really existed as God in eternity past, too. Um, of course, you know, the, the Gnostics would say that he was in the form of a bondservant, meaning he didn't actually become flesh, but he looked like he was in flesh. That's what the Gnostics would argue. Um, because if he took on flesh, well, that means he was totally defiled and worthless, uh-huh. according to them. But that's not true. I mean, the Gospels make it clear he was truly human. And just as he was truly human, he, in eternity past, was truly God. And in a moment, we'll get into the Christological errors, the heresies surrounding the natures of Christ. And they all really fall into one of three camps. So you either have a group that's denying the humanity of Christ, um, like the Gnostics, or a group that's denying the deity of Christ, like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mm -hmm. right? Or somebody who's denying the, the union of the two and how they work together and function together. All right. How could Jesus actually empty himself and still retain deity? That is quite a question, right? Any thoughts? That's how he retained deity. (laughs) What do you mean? By emptying himself. What did he empty himself of? So he didn't empty himself. Oh, it says it. But emptied himself in verse 7, taking the form of a bonser and being made in the likeness of men. Would it be all his, maybe not all his attributes, but most of them? Is that what he emptied himself of? He was no longer, well, he probably was. Yeah, we have a hymn. Forget that. <laughs> we have a hymn that says, emptied himself of all but love. Isn't that what that means? <laughs> That's, uh, yeah. now, in our hymn book, they changed the line, thankfully. Yeah. So we don't have to. <laughs> Emptied himself in matchless love, I think is what it changed to. In our hymn book, they changed the, the line to make it more theologically correct. Well, that's good. Because the original, written by, I think, Charles Wesley, emptied himself of all but love. We do have to remember the, the simplicity of God, that he's not made up of parts, right? So um, 
just like we can't empty ourselves of, well, I guess we could like empty ourselves apart, like cut off our right arm and empty ourselves. But that's not what it's talking about. When well, did he empty or did he just set aside those things? They were still had them, but some of those things he wasn't using laid aside. Um, I think this MacArthur quote comes in a minute. Well, I have this cheat sheet here, which isn't caught up anymore. So let's figure it out together. First, we need to understand the word as to mean to make void, to nullify or to make of no effect. So not to, um, to get away Just of use part of it. Yeah. So to make void, to nullify, to make of no effect. Yeah, second, we have to recognize what was being nullified, what was being emptied, so to speak. So different translations. He made himself nothing, NIV. King James, he made himself of no reputation. And Phillips, he humbled himself. Again, this text has a context, and the context is humility. Have the same mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself. Does that mean he got rid of his deity? No. Paul wasn't even talking about um, that. He was talking about this humility that the Philippians were to, to imitate. And he, though he was king of kings and lord of lords. He is king of kings and lord of lords, but he stepped down from that position. Once again, as we saw back in Hebrews 1, he made himself lower than the angels, um, taking on flesh. Oh, it's after this, I think. All right, so these translations rightly express the idea of what is happening in the text as communicated by Paul. All right, so MacArthur says that his was an emptying by addition, not by subtraction. If he actually surrendered or gave up his divine attributes, then it might suggest that he ceased to be God. But that would result in something at odds with how the Bible identifies him as being fully and truly God. So that's always helped me in my understanding that he didn't subtract from himself, but he added to himself. He added, he took on flesh. And so it's subtraction by addition. Um, he... And that may have been Mayhew that wrote that, by the way. You said MacArthur. MacArthur says that give, quite give, often. Give Mayhew so a little credit. It, it could have been, been Mayhew. <laughs> but if it is, and MacArthur has stolen that from him since. Um, but yeah, it's, it's helpful in understanding. Because his shot's fired. <laughs> yes, because I Because if he was... All right, if he was coming as the sun in his glory, He's going to be like on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's going to be walking around, shining, and uh, scaring all the heathens. Right? Yeah, well, that's all, not the. All the Jews. That, that's true, but that's not our biggest issue with him coming um, in just his deity. Well, first of all, he wouldn't be able to, to walk around, right? Because he right. had taken on flesh. Right. But. The importance of the hypostatic union of the one person of Christ having two natures is that he is able to act as our mediator, that he is able to um, bridge that gap between humanity and, and deity. He is able to, as a man, pay for the sins of humanity. And as God, he is able to, um, to offer up that, that purification, that propitiation for our sins. So he guess, is the mediator. My point... What I'm trying to say is God is perfect, right? Yes. And definitionally, if he's perfect and he's flesh, he's taking a big step down. And yet, it 
is Christ, right? You follow what I'm saying? He's the perfect man. Yeah, um, he is the, the God man. The God man. Uh, yeah. So the emptying by addition and not by subtraction is the addition is that he's adding flesh that is yeah. imperfect. Amen. Right. Yep. Okay, but, so as he lay there in the manger, then he was fully God and fully man, right? So he was still running everything as he's laid there. It's still holding the world together, right? That is just, that's where you get that song, Mary, did you know him? You know, when you read, listen to that, and you go, wow. Yeah. That's, <clears throat> and I think, in, in my own thinking, while that song does get you to just ponder and, and wonder, did she actually realize what had been revealed to her? Um, I think an even more confounding question is, did Jesus himself know in his humanity? Um, I don't know. We'll ask him. We should. I'll put that on hold. Luke, was it Luke 2.52? He yeah. grew in stature and in favor, or knowledge, and in knowledge and in favor with God and man. Yeah. He had to, he had to learn how to communicate, how to talk, how to walk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So was he reading through Old Testament scriptures one day and realized, dude, that's me? Or <laughs> did he have... It's not Remember, he was also indwelled fully by the Holy Spirit in a way that nobody had been before. So, wasn't that with like John the Baptist when he was still inside Elizabeth? Yeah, jumping around in there. Yeah. A question I posed to my boys around the dinner table this week was um, the old question of Is Mary the mother of God? Um, <coughs> any initial thoughts? No, not not as a <laughs> At least not in the Roman Catholic sense. Yeah, not that. All right, maybe we'll get there in a second. <laughs> All right, so Paul is making an incredible theological statement in this passage that Yahweh has become a slave to the point of death. Um, yeah, looking back to Luke, Luke one, um, when the Holy Spirit indwelt. Elizabeth, well, John, who was in Elizabeth. Um, let's see. So before, in Luke one thirty-eight, it says that Mary said, "Behold, the bond servant or the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word." And the angel departed from her. So she is recognizing herself as a bond slave of the Lord. Um, and I don't think she's talking about the angel there. I think she's talking about Yahweh there. Um, and then. Jumping down after she goes to visit Elizabeth in verse 45, it says, and this is Elizabeth speaking. She says, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. No, it's before that. Um, 43. And how has it come to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? And so she seemed to recognize Jesus as Yahweh as the Lord and Mary as the bearer of God, the God bearer, right? The mother of God in the sense that um, she was carrying around deity within her womb, which is cool. Um, but Yahweh has become a slave to the point of death. All right, let's not lose sight of the big picture. Um, John Frame says, the nature of the kenosis 
Um, that's the word for empty in Philippians 2, of Philippians 2, 7, can be understood perfectly well as the self-humbling of God's servant. That is, of course, Paul's point in the larger context. This is an ethical point, not a metaphysical one. So he didn't empty himself metaphysically of anything, taking parts or attributes and set them aside as an ethical point. And Paul is telling them to behave differently. Again, that's why context is so important. Upon his birth, Jesus possessed deity and humanity. The two natures remained full and true. And they did not blend together, and they did not remain so separate as to make him schizo. <laughs> um, and again, that's where these false understandings and these heresies come into play, because people will separate or mesh and um, not distinguish the two natures. The early church had to work through this to address it. So we have these three heresies here. Um, so monophysitism um, said that Christ has one nature, a blend of humanity and deity. So it took his two natures and made them into kind of a, a third nature. Eutychianism, <laughs> yeah. Eutychianism is a, a subcategory of the, the first monophysitism. Um, and it says that Christ has one nature, and it was that way pre-incarnate, before uh, the incarnation. Yeah. And Nestorianism says that the natures are completely separate, essentially rendering him as two people living in one body. So we've been going through the book of Acts, and one of the main cities and churches in the book of Acts is a church at Antioch. And the church at Syrian Antioch was struggling through this with understanding the two natures of, of Jesus. Okay, well, yes, he's divine, but, but yes, he's human. How does this work together? And so out of that, that group kind of came this thinking of separating them so much into two different people. And the story was a dude who rose up out of the church at Antioch and he became the, the leader and the spokesman for this kind of philosophy that says that they are so separate and so distinct. Um, and he would actually say the, the big error of Nestorianism, while it includes separating out the two natures so much in, that they become two persons, is really starting with the humanity of Christ. And so he would say that Jesus was born a 100% human of Mary, and that at the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus, and at that point, he became the Son of God. So he wasn't, didn't start off with God, but it started off with humanity, and he added deity to his, to his person. And that deity was almost in the form of a second person. So he had the Son of Man and the Son of God, two persons within this one person. So it is pretty much a schizotype situation where he's torn between these two persons, these two natures that um, want to fight against each other. And that's really where the, the term um, Mary the Mother of God came around. It was in response to Nestorius and this teaching that Jesus took on deity after some point, at some point in time. And so the church in 
431, the Council of Ephesus, they said that Mary was the mother of God. And in saying that, they meant to say that um, the same person who was eternally begotten of the Father was also temporally begotten of Mary, that she was carrying within her womb deity in the fullest, um, truly God and truly human. And, of course, that's been taken and twisted. And um, like you mentioned, the Catholic Church has just run with that. And now they say, well, not only was Mary the mother of God, but Mary herself is a co-matrix. And she is worthy of worship and praise. And she's without sin. And um, it's been taken to the, the far extreme end in the opposite direction. Because um, you can look at that statement. You can read that statement. You can say well, then God must have had a, a beginning at a certain point in time. And it would be denying his eternality, the pre-existence of Christ. Um, and so while it was useful in one sense, it was taken and um, taken to the extreme. And Eutychius was a dude who came along after uh, Nestorianism had become popular and um, kind of made its way through different um, different realms of, of thinking and again was popularized. So Eutychius came along and he said that um, he was really focusing on how the, the two work together. They're not separated as Nestorianism <clears throat> tried to say, but they work together. And he um, emphasized more the, the deity of Christ. And he had a, a phrase, a saying, where he said that um, it's as if you had taken one drop of vinegar and dropped it in the ocean. And the drop of vinegar being the humanity of Christ and the ocean of water being the deity of Christ. And so while, yes, you still have two natures in there, um, technically, the humanity of Christ is really um, swamped out by the deity of Christ, that the deity of Christ overwhelms it. And it it taught kind of a third nature of Christ. So taking these two natures of Christ and melding them in together to make a third nature of Christ, which is mostly divine, though not all 100% divine, and a little bit of humanity, but it's really inconsequential in the end. Yeah, the, first, the first two views on there are basically the same. It's just Eutychianism says that it was that way before he was born. Monophysitism says he was, he was God, and then when he uh, took on flesh at the incarnation, that's when humanity, that blend of humanity started. Eutychianism says that that blend was going on even before he was conceived on earth. Yeah, he's quoted, Eutychius is quoted as saying that Christ's human nature had been swallowed up and lost in his humanity. Or in his deity. Maybe I wrote that down wrong. That his human nature had been swallowed up and lost. Yeah, it must have been in his humanity. Um, and I'm not going to look for that quote right now. But he messes up the, the two natures of Jesus. And so um, the Council of Chalcedon, 20 years after the Council of Ephesus, really takes and defines the nature of Christ. And what it does for us is it sets guidelines, um, guard posts, really, for how we can understand and describe the nature of Jesus. And really, that's kind of what we're left to. We're left to, well, here's a ditch over here, and this is bad, right? You can't say that 
um, Jesus has two persons within himself. That's, that's not what scripture says. There's this other ditch over here that says, well, the natures are blended together. You have this ditch up here that denies his humanity. This ditch over here denies his deity. And somewhere in here is where we have to fall. And people have tried throughout time to more specifically define the person of Jesus. Um, but to some extent, we're unable to, right? Because he is eternal. He is infinite. He is God. Um, so we have these ditches on the side and we can say, well, that's certainly not it. That's not it. These are heresies. Um, and we can say, yes, there is one person of Jesus. Yes, there are two natures within Jesus. But we can get ourselves in trouble sometimes when we try to go too far. Another question for you. Did God die? First Peter 3.18. Which says? He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So yes, God died. It so. says more specifically, <laughs> For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So if he was put to death in the flesh, in the flesh, does that only talk about his human nature? Or was his divine nature put to death? Did God die? Um, it, yeah, it turned into a binity for a second. And with the Trinity went to a binity and then back to a Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds yeah. right. <laughs> But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Mm -hmm. So to turn a trinity into a finity, I, yeah. R.C. Yeah. Uh, Sproul actually came out one time, and he said that God didn't die, but Jesus only died in his humanity as he touched his human nature. That's classic R.C. Sproul language. As he touched his human nature, as he touched his divine nature. Um, and he came under quite a bit of fire for that. Because again, speaking back to the fact that Jesus is our mediator, he is truly human and truly God. Um, he, he bridges that gap. And so when we say that, that only his humanity tasted death, that only his humanity died, we can get ourselves into some mm -hmm. theological issues. But if you say the person of Jesus ceased to exist at any point in all eternity, you also get into some issues. Well... What does death mean? Does death mean to cease to exist? Or does that's, death that's, speak that's of... That's precisely what needs to be defined. Yeah, it's a separation of the material from the immaterial, right? The, the soul from the body. And that certainly happened. I don't think anybody would deny that that happened. But again, we need to not go outside of bounds and be content in praising God for being God and realizing that the secret things belong to the Lord. The things that are revealed belong to us, to our children forever. So when we so, die, it also says in Psalms that he will not let his only one see corruption. Decay, right? Decay, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I'm, just, I'm on the side that God can't die. So, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty safe, it seems to me. Yeah, again, what do we mean when we speak of death? Really more than that. Can God be separated from his physical body? Yeah, I think so. I don't think it's saying that he ceased to exist. Um, we'd be in trouble if we said that, right? Yeah. Can I well, see another when we die, we're going to go on eternally too, right? 
Yeah. And Heaven or hell. That's so the point that under man wants to die, and then the judgment will be raised, resurrected to everlasting life or everlasting death. And it wasn't like Christ came back and it was, you know, all hunky dory and there was no evidence that he had gone through the crucifixion. Yeah. He showed Thomas. He showed, he showed see my hands. Exactly. He said, My Lord and my God. Right? Mm -hmm. All right, so how on earth can we talk about this if we have issues with these kind of questions? Did God die? Um, seems like it would be relatively simple to answer. Um, if we can't, you know, go outside of these different boundaries, um, if that's heretical, then how do we talk about this? Lots of words. <laughs> uh, very carefully, precisely chosen words. So again, this is uh, from the Council of Chalcedon. Lots of words, I said. <laughs> Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all, with one accord, teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. So at once, like at the same time, complete in Godhood and in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body of one substance with the Father as regards to his Godhead. Remember that term one substance that came up in our uh, Trinitarian discussion. Hupostasius uh, or uh, what is it? Hupostasius. Um, and at the same, so of one substance with the Father as regards to his Godhead and at the same time of one substance with us as regards to his manhood. Like us in respect, apart from sin, as, regard, as regards his Godhead begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards to his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, or the mother of God, right? God, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. So that right there is important and this next phrase so the distinction so we need to be able to distinguish between the two natures without separating so uh, to differentiate between his divine nature and his human nature but not separating them he is truly man truly God so the distinction of nature is being in no way annulled by the union but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and substance subsistence <laughs> not as parted or separated in two persons but one and the same so take that and memorize that for <laughs> when you get these difficult questions no matter who knocks on your door you just say that yeah and then you sit there and you try to explain it to them for the next week or two no you just say it yeah <laughs> so yeah lots of precise words to try to understand the union that was pretty profound for them, I would think. To be able to recognize that and not having been walking with Christ, but being totally but in his presence. So this is much later. Over 400 years later. Almost like it's in scripture and it was there from the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Romans 1, right? Says that as to his human nature, he was a son of David, but according to his deity, he was made how does it go i'm getting mixed up he was declared to be the son of god, the son of god with with, by the, the resurrection of the dead yep, by the resurrection. Of the dead. yep. um 
What else was I going to point out? Oh, God bearer right here. So that is actually a little bit different from Mary, the mother of God. That's just how we translate it in our English. But God bearer, um, Theotokos is the phrase that they used. Um, and it just said that she, she carried God. So she didn't give existence to God, but she carried him in her womb. So it's a little bit more precise than the phrase Mary, the mother of God. Was this written in the Greek, by the way? I'm curious. Probably. Or Latin. Oh. That's a question for Siri or Google or Alexa. Yeah, it would have been, it would have been uh, Greek. It would have been before the Latin invasion, I think. Or Jeremy. Could be wrong. He thinks. <laughs> but he could be wrong. I could be wrong. Alexa's never wrong, right? No, Alexa's always wrong. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now what? What difference does it make? Why? Big difference. Why? Well, it keeps you from going in a wrong direction from which there may be no return. Well, what's wrong with saying that that Jesus became God at his baptism? Because it destroys eternity. It takes away his eternality. Well, he can take on flesh. If he can take on flesh at the incarnation, why can't he take on flesh at a later point in time? If you still affirm his eternality, if you still affirm his pre-existence. Because scripture says that he came once for all. Yeah, so it goes against scripture. By the way, right? he is going to come a second time. Just not. <laughs> but yet, and he retains his, his body. Right. He does. He does. And a lot of people were saying back then, and even today, some charismatics will go on, they will say that he took on deity at a later point. And if he can take on deity at a later point, if the word can, or if Jesus can be uh, overcome by the word, is the way that we, they would say it, this, the pre-incarnate Christ who is a second person of the Godhead, if he can come upon Jesus at a later point, then he can do that for us in the same way, that we can walk in the sun, that we can be um, indwelt and controlled by the Holy Spirit, we can obtain some form and level of deity. Um, yeah, it's twisted, but... That's heresy. It is heresy, so... Absolutely blasphemy. Yep. I can go on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and obviously if he isn't um, God, then we have major issues, and he has no right to... He, isn't eternal, and he can't offer an eternal sacrifice to God for our sin against an eternal God and offer that satisfactory payment, that propitiation for our sins. So, yeah, really all comes down to the atonement. Can the atonement take place by anyone other than uh, a person who is truly human and truly divine? What do you say to someone who asks, when did God make Jesus? I asked another one of my kids that this week. I asked Marshall, um, when, did, when did Jesus become God? And I was so proud. He looked at me like I was lost in the woods. And he said, Dad, Jesus never became God. Jesus yeah, has always been God. He called me and said, I think my dad's a heretic. <laughs> As he should have. <laughs> But what do we say to someone who asks, when did God make Jesus? No, Jesus is God. He always was. He took on flesh. 
Speaking from Scripture, what verses can you point them to? John 1.14. John 1.14. I am. John 8.58, right? Before Abraham was, I am. All right. One more. What other verse? Psalm 90. All right. Colossians 1. Hebrews 1. John 1. There you go. The three chapter ones we talked about last week. John, Colossians, Hebrews. All right. If Jesus wasn't the one true God while in the flesh, what are the other options? If he wasn't the one true God while in the flesh, what are the other options? We're still in our sins. Yeah. Still in our sins. Again, all comes back to the atonement, right? Can't take place if he isn't the one true God while in the flesh. All right. Memory verse. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And next week, we're going to get into more fun stuff. Virgin birth, impeccability, resurrection substance. Anybody know what the impeccability is? Something you can't peck. <laughs> yeah, good job. It, you can't really rest too much. You're saying <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys hear what Jerry said? <laughs> he says it speaks to the Im impossibility of, of sinning. Was Jesus able to sin? Um, yeah. What about impassibility? What is the impassibility of God? Is God able to have emotion? Yeah. Passion, right? That's how I remember. So impassibility is a passion. Um, and to what degree is he driven by his, his passions? We are very controlled by our passions as human beings, right? Um, is God in that same respect? And if not, does that mean he doesn't have passions? We won't get into that, but <laughs> um, he is very other creaturely than we are, right? So impeccability, that's, that's a fun topic. Any thoughts or questions on the hypostatic union? What is the hypostatic union? That's why you don't have any thoughts or questions on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the understanding that Jesus is both 100% man and 100% God. All right. Never blended, not separate, utterly unique. Amen. And at the end of the day, it's a mystery to us, but one that we accept by the authority of Scripture. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you once again for your, your character, for who you are, and that you are beyond understanding. We thank you for your word that you've given to us so that we can understand you in some respect. We pray that you would give us more ability to do so. Pray for the upcoming service, that you would be honored and glorified, that you would prepare our hearts uh, for worship. And we thank you for, uh, for Sundays that we can come together and we can remember your resurrection. We can fellowship with your saints and um, we can praise who you are. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.